This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Support this podcast by joining the independent progressive media revolution today at humanistreport.com. Welcome to the Humanist Report podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 76th episode of the program. Today is January 6th of 2017, and we have a great show for you today. But before we get started, I want to thank these individuals for deciding to join the independent progressive media revolution. So today we have Rick Lomar, we have Nikolai Marisau, Christine Silva, Robin Berglund, Kelly Kress, Marcos Rodriguez, Nikki Sonriza, and also Rick Deutsch. So all of these individuals decided to support the program either by signing up to be a Patreon patron, donating to us via PayPal, or by signing up to be a member on HumanistReport.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can visit the links down below in the description box, or you can simply support the program by sharing our videos, recommending us to your friends and family, or whitelisting us on Adblock. So on today's episode, we have a jam-packed show filled with a ton of segments. So coming up, Bernie Sanders' epic and Republican rant on the Senate floor will be discussed. Also, I'm going to talk about how Bernie Sanders is using Donald Trump's own tweets to hold him accountable, and I'll also talk about his warning to Republicans and what he plans to do if they actually do try to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security insurance. Additionally, New York is adopting a very popular policy from Bernie Sanders, and I'll also discuss what's at stake if Republicans actually do repeal the Affordable Care Act as they've been planning to do. Now, I'll also talk about how the Republican Party is now in damage control mode after their failed attempt to gut the Office of Congressional Ethics. I'll discuss Obama's strategy to combat fake news and Donald Trump's plan to kill the Internet and his lack of regard for sensitive international issues. So all of these topics will be included in today's episode, plus more. So stay tuned. I hope you guys enjoy the show. So if it actually is the case that the detestable caucus of corporate sellouts in Congress known as the Republican Party do get their way and they actually do repeal the Affordable Care Act like they've been saying they're going to do for the last seven years, then the consequences of this would be vast. I mean, it would be a complete and utter catastrophe. And they took time to reassure the American people that when they said they were going to repeal Obamacare and throw 30 million Americans off of their current insurance plan, they weren't bluffing. We know that things are only getting worse under Obamacare. This is about people paying higher premiums every year and feeling powerless to stop it. It's about families paying deductibles that are so high, it doesn't even feel like you have health insurance in the first place. And in so many parts of the country, as you've always heard, even if you want to look for better coverage, you're stuck with one option. One choice is not a choice, it is a monopoly. The healthcare system has been ruined, dismantled under Obamacare. The answer here is not to ignore the problem. The answer here is not to ignore the problem to, to keep some failed legacy. The answer here is bold action. Solve problems. Bring relief to Americans. We will help Americans crying out for relief from Obamacare, and we will keep our promise to the people. It'll literally begin on day one. Uh, before, uh, before the end of the day, we do anticipate that uh, uh, the president-elect uh, will be in the Oval Office. Uh, taking action uh, to both repeal executive orders and also set into motion through executive action policies to implement uh, 
promises that were made on the campaign trail. Now, to be objective, some of the things that Paul Ryan said were truthful. He said that deductibles are incredibly high and healthcare premiums just aren't affordable. That's true. Uh, and also, Healthcare isn't comprehensive unless you pay upwards of $400 for your plan. So you're paying a high amount of money each month for your healthcare premium. And that doesn't include the full range of services that you need to have complete health care. You don't have dental. You don't have eye uh, unless you pay more. So, yes, it is the case that healthcare deductibles are too high and healthcare premiums are incredibly expensive. But then he was incredibly disingenuous about what the Affordable Care Act actually is and does. So he says it only gives you one choice. That's completely factually inaccurate. It subsidizes your decision as to what you choose. You can choose to take this subsidy and go on the market and choose whatever healthcare coverage that you want. So this is something that was a big gift to the health insurance industry, hence why they pushed for it. They like it. And this was a plan that was proposed by the Heritage Foundation before. So this is a conservative Republican health care plan that Democrats adopted. And even though it is the case that uh, it doesn't do much and that it's now basically broken and needs to be reformed, well, it was a step in the right direction. And there are many provisions within the Affordable Care Act that I like. So, for example, I like that younger people can stay on their parents' plans until they're 26. I like that insurance companies can no longer discriminate against people who have pre-existing conditions. So, you know, it was a step in the right direction, but it's broken and it needs to be fixed. And what we need to do is move towards a single-payer system. And at a minimum, if we're not going to move towards single-payer, we need to have a public option because a public option would force these health insurance industries, which currently rip people off, to compete with a government-run plan, which would be optional. And if you choose the government-run plan and if enough people go towards that, well, then the private insurance companies would see that they have to compete with the government. So they would inevitably lower their prices. This is called competition. And if you have a government option, it makes the other health insurance companies more competitive. It uh, influences them to offer more, as well as reduce the cost of their premiums, because right now they are making lots of money ripping us off and not doing very much to give us real health care. So with that being said, I have been extremely vocal about the ways in which the Affordable Care Act doesn't work and where it needs to be reformed. However, one thing is very clear. You can't just repeal it unless you have a plan to replace it. Now, the Republican plan to replace the Affordable Care Act is this. <laughs> Oh, that's right. They don't have a plan. So what they're going to do is simply repeal the Affordable Care Act. And that's that. They have no replacement. Nothing. They have proposed zero solutions. Uh, and if you do that, as it stands, if you simply just repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, here's what is at stake. So 30 million Americans would lose their health insurance like that immediately, including myself. And if I get knocked off of my already shitty health care plan, I'm going to be pissed. I'm going to be really pissed, and I'm going to make some calls to Republican offices. Now, even if you just do a partial repeal of Obamacare and roll back some provisions, the Urban Institute estimates, quote, the number of uninsured people would rise from 28.9 million to 58.7 million in 2019, an increase of 29.8 million people, 103%. 
the share of non-elderly people without insurance would increase from 11% to 21%, a higher rate of uninsurance than before the Affordable Care Act because of the disruption to the non-group insurance market. So I'm going to read that again. That would lead to a higher rate of uninsurance than before the Affordable Care Act. It would be a disaster. Now, when you break down those numbers, 82% of those that will lose their health insurance would come from the working class, and 12.9 million in total would lose Medicaid and CHIP coverage in two years. So a bunch of children would be knocked off of their health insurance plan. Now, overall, they conclude, quote, this scenario does not move the country back to the situation before the Affordable Care Act. It moves the country to a situation with higher uninsurance rates than was the case before the ACA's reforms. To replace the ACA after reconciliation with new policies designed to increase insurance insurance coverage, the federal government would have to raise new taxes, substantially cut spending, or increase the deficit. But apparently, you don't have to worry about losing your health care coverage if the Affordable Care Act is in fact repealed, because Kellyanne Conway says that you're not going to. Okay, guys, take her word for it. <laughs> Repealing the Affordable Care Act, which would make you lose your subsidy and then subsequently lose your coverage, that's not going to result from repealing the Affordable Care Act because the senior advisor to Trump says so. Well, unfortunately for her, we all live in reality and we know that that's obviously refutable and just, it's brazenly bullshit. Let's call it what it is. It's bullshit. Now, ironically, these Republicans pride themselves on being fiscally conservative and more fiscally responsible, which is factually untrue because Republicans always increase the deficit like Reagan did and George W. Bush did. But if they repealed the Affordable Care Act, well, it would cost more money in the end. So this would add $353 million to the deficit by 2025. And also another aspect of repealing the Affordable Care Act that's not discussed enough, I think, is that this would cause many rural hospitals to lose their funding and force them to shut down. And what this means for people who live in rural areas is that if they have a medical emergency, this will increase the chances that they will die because it's going to take longer for them to get to a hospital. They're going to have to drive further. And it, it would be a catastrophe. Like, I can't overstate this enough. It would be absolutely just a disaster. So these 30 million people that will not have health insurance if Republicans do, in fact, repeal the Affordable Care Act without putting forth a substantive replacement, well, they would either uh, die or go bankrupt if they have a medical emergency. The conclusion is that it would be a disaster that's what's at stake. If you strip people of their health insurance, they die. Now, again, I'm not saying that the Affordable Care Act is perfect and that I like the Affordable Care Act. In fact, I think it should be called the Unaffordable Care Act because it doesn't help people. The subsidy is not enough to make healthcare premiums and deductibles affordable. And that's because you haven't successfully reined in the health insurance industry, which continues to rip us off. Just look at our prescription drug prices. They rip us off every single day. And other countries around the world, they don't pay this much for healthcare or prescription drugs. We're unique here. So the answer is you have to provide a solution to the Affordable Care Act if you're going to repeal it. Now, what I think would be easier for Republicans to do is you simply reform it and you build upon it. You include a public option and you can take credit for a broken policy and you can go to the American people and say, look, we fixed it. Now give us credit. So, I mean, if you want to be smart politically, that's what you do. But they actually think they're being politically smart right here and that they're going to earn political points by doing this. You're not. Once people actually lose their health care, 
you're going to see that there's going to be a lot of pissed off people. And right now they talk about how they dislike the Affordable Care Act because of the individual mandate and that it requires them to buy health insurance. Otherwise, they're going to uh, pay a penalty, which is several hundred dollars each year. Um, but the alternative is that they don't have health insurance. If you don't have health insurance and you have a medical emergency, you die in many cases or you uh, you simply go bankrupt. So if Republicans actually want to repeal it, they better damn well come up with a strategy to transition those 30 million people that would lose coverage to something else. And there's reasons why Donald Trump is already expressing reservations about doing this. It's because stripping people of their health care is not an effective way to govern. So you can espouse rhetoric that people generally agree with, because many people, if you poll them, they dislike the Affordable Care Act, but they like the Affordable Care Act if you poll them on individual provisions. Uh, but if you throw them off their health insurance, you're going to piss a lot of people off. So try it. You guys will lose. So as you all know by now, Republicans are currently in hot water after attempting to quietly gut the Office of Congressional Ethics, and they are now in full damage control mode. Now, how they do damage control varies depending on the loathsome Republican you see. So for example, this Republican tried to run away from the issue when he was confronted about it. Did you vote for that? That was a voice vote. It was not a recorded vote. Quite frankly, I sat there and observed. So did you abstain from this vote, or did you take a position? What was your well, position? It was clear that it was going to pass, so there was a lot of discussion about it, and so it passed. Mm -hmm. That's the main thing. Did you support it? You know, good morning. You know, I've not been a victim of the OCE, so there was a lot of discussion about the lack of due process, the lack of transparency. That was great. You can tell that he was uncomfortable because he was being confronted and he couldn't walk faster without appearing to be awkward. If he could, he would run. So that was fantastic. Now, there's another way that the loathsome Republicans are trying to do damage control and the propaganda wing of the Republican Party, which is Fox News, they didn't necessarily choose to run away from the issue like the coward you just saw did, but instead they tried to uh, deceive the American public and obfuscate the truth. The other side of the story is that this oversight ethics board really didn't amount to very much at all in the first place. All it, all, the only official power it really had, Tucker, and it had no subpoena power, so the, its investigations, to the extent they were investigations, were highly limited, was to make recommendations to the House Ethics Committee, which remains in place. Uh, yeah. It did, however, have the ability to receive anonymous tips, investigate them in whatever way it could, and then publish them. So that what you had was sort of half-finished, half-baked investigative right. material being released uh, of material that might or might not even be uh, uh, the subject of a recommendation to the House Ethics Committee. And it, this, was a, this was an operation, I think, that it's fair to say was in bad need of reform because the potential for incomplete investigations was very real and the potential for abuse in the release of these materials right. was very real as well. So, and gutting is a sort of a useless word to apply to an outfit that really never had any official power to begin with. Now that was really insightful because he said the other side of the story is that the Oversight Ethics Board really didn't amount to much in the first place. Oh yeah? If the OCE really is useless, then why would you gut it? Wouldn't you instead try to reform it and make it more effective? We all know what's really going on here. They want corruption, the legalized corruption that we already have, where you can take unlimited sums of money from your super bag. That's not enough. They actually want to do illegal corruption and get away with that as well. Not happening. He said their only real power is to make recommendations to the House Ethics Committee. 
And that's true. But when they conduct these investigations, they were allowed to publish the results of their findings to the public. And they did not like that because they don't like to be shamed when they commit brazen acts of corruption. So that's specifically the problem that they had with this. And of course, they don't want to reform it because the people who vocally supported this move were being investigated by the OCE. So for example, Congressman Blake Farenthold supported this, and he's currently being investigated by it for sexually harassing a staffer. So of course he'd want to do away with it. And there was also Peter Roskam, who was under investigation by the OCE for accepting a bribe in the form of a trip to Taiwan. But for some reason, he suddenly doesn't want to talk about his support for the measure after previously publicly supporting it. It's funny what public shaming will do. Now, also, I love how Jason Chaffetz is someone who voted for this as well. This guy lambasted Hillary Clinton for months, and rightfully so, because of her corruption while she was Secretary of State, and now he's not so concerned about corruption. He wants to gut this corruption watchdog because he wants to be corrupt himself. Just the hypocrisy is just... It's too much for me. It's overwhelming. <laughs> now, finally, we come to the third and final response, uh, and this is from Steve King. He chose to just outright admit you know what, I'd do away with it totally. You support sort of taking it, taking the office and moving it under the very lawmakers it Simply, is supposed to Simply, I would repeal it. it completely if I had the choice. You would get rid of the ethics I office would. altogether. Why? Uh, because I haven't seen any good things come from them, and I've seen many, many bad things come from them. If you're an entity that's set up and your purpose is to accept complaints, which will be anonymous if you accept anonymous complaints at all, and then you do the investigation, you come up with these charges, they don't have any subpoena power, they don't have any enforcement power, they have to refer to the ethics committee that's fine if that's all they did but they're leaking information and misinformation to the press and they're if they found power in doing that and that has cost members of Congress in total millions of dollars it's damaged political careers unjustly and probably ended some political careers early so I'm glad to know where you stand there Steve and if you notice there, he contradicted himself because on one hand, he says that the OCE lacks teeth, but on another hand, he said that it unjustly destroyed political careers too early. Well, which is it? If it doesn't have teeth, then how does it destroy political careers? Well, it's because he claims they, quote, leak information and misinformation to the press. No, they simply make the conclusions of their investigations public. That's called transparency, Steve, something you wouldn't know about. So in other words, he doesn't like when the public finds out about corruption, and he's proposing to let the House Ethics Committee be the ones in charge of corruption, because I'm sure they'll be completely impartial when they investigate themselves and their peers for corruption. That sounds like a great check on corruption, Steve. Look, the fact of the matter is that we already have lax campaign finance laws that allows these types of donations to go on that they're just tantamount to bribery. They really are. They're legalized bribes and it's a form of corruption. But that's not enough for Steve. Now, presumably, I should be giving Steve credit here because at least he's being bold and just telling the truth, right? Well, actually, it's a bit more complicated than that. So his admission here is actually the result of corruption. You see, Citizens United, which is a conservative group that sued the government over a federal statute that prohibited them from running political ads near the time of elections, well, they ultimately won in what is now known as the worst decision in Supreme Court history, where our campaign finance laws were effectively gutted. This group, they want more money in politics because they want to be able to bribe politicians. And in fact, they just so happen to have donated $10,000 to the super PAC of our good friend Steve here. So in advocating for less restrictions on corruption, he's doing exactly what his donor, Citizens United, wants. 
No shit. But irrespective of how some Republicans choose to do damage control, whether they try to literally run from it, or they obfuscate the truth, or just straight up admit that they want to be more corrupt like Steve King, one thing is certain about all of these people. The Republican Party, they're just a bunch of traitors, and they should be lucky that people aren't staging sit-ins in their office every single day. So uh, this organization will continue to be on their asses, as will the American people. Deal with it. After witnessing the Republican Party back down from their attempt to gut the Office of Congressional Ethics, that illustrated something that I think is really important to me, and that is that we still have power in this country as American citizens, even though we're not rich, even though we're not elites, we don't lobby members of Congress, we still do in fact have power. And even though everyone in Congress, mostly everyone in Congress, 99.9% at least, are puppets, well, they're still human beings. And like all human beings, they don't like to deal with pressure from the public. They don't like to deal with people yelling in their ears. So just the phone calls that were made to Republicans who tried to gut the OCE, it showed that something so simple like that can have a huge impact. And with all of us having no time to protest because we are working two and three jobs and with us lacking the resources to protest and fly to D.C., there's something that I think we can do to take action that would be simple, yet it could have a huge impact. So I'm proposing that we take action. So down in the description box, I've included links to every senator in the United States. Now, this includes important contact information like their phone number and their email address. And if you click on their website, you can find more contact information at the bottom of their page. Now, there's another link in the description box that will direct you to your representative. So if you don't know who your current representative is, you can simply enter in your zip code and then a link to the website of your representative will pop up. And once you go to their website, typically if you scroll down to the very bottom, you'll see all of the contact information that you need to get a hold of them. Now, once you have that information, I want you to save their phone number. So not only are we going to add it to our phone's contact list, but we're also going to bookmark these so we have them handy. And most importantly, I want you to physically write this information down somewhere so you don't forget about it. Now you can put it on a post-it note and attach it to your computer monitor. I put mine on my refrigerator just so that way it's handy and I don't forget about it. Now, the point of doing this is for you to get involved. Anytime you see something in Congress that you don't like, I would urge you to call these people. They represent you. Their job is to listen to their constituents. Their job is to represent your interests. So you have the right, you're entitled to call these people. Your tax dollars fund their salaries. So anytime you see something you don't like, I want you to call them. Now, if you're in a place like me where you only have Democratic representatives, I would urge you to adopt a Republican. Pick a Republican uh, throughout the country and write their number down as well and give them a call anytime you see them doing something shady. So if they want to privatize Social Security, if they want to repeal the Affordable Care Act, call that individual up and demand that they do not do that. Now, What's good about having Democrats there is that they still represent your interests. So even if they're doing something that you agree with, well, you can still call them when you see something shady going on in Congress. So, for example, uh, I could call up my representative and tell him that I want him to stop Republicans from gutting the OCE. I can call up my senator and ask them to filibuster a harmful policy that the Republicans are trying to push through Congress. So I think that this is really important. Now, 
let me just say this. Does this replace actual grassroots activism and getting out of your house and actually showing up in the offices of these politicians? Of course it doesn't. But this is something that everyday Americans who are busy, who don't necessarily have time to protest, can do. And it's something that's small but yet ultimately can be very meaningful if enough people do it. So I'm encouraging people to do this, and I'd love to see uh, the pictures that you send me of the card that you put somewhere. Tweet them to me, at Humanist Report. You know, let's all do this together. As progressives, we need to be even louder than ever right now, because with Republicans in control of every single branch of government, with Republicans controlling more than two-thirds of governorships, with them in control of legislatures around the country, I think that the time for resistance is right now, and it can start with you just doing something as simple as this. So Bernie Sanders recently made a speech on the Senate floor where he discussed the new budget proposed by Republicans, and that budget includes a repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Now, he also talked about their plan to basically gut Medicare, gut Medicaid, and privatize Social Security, and he was not having any of it. And he ended up going off on what I think is one of his best rants ever. And he was just on fire. He threw the Republican Party under the bus. He called them out, and he even called out Democrats. So let's go ahead and watch this, and then there's a lot I want to talk about afterwards. The Republican plan, their budget plan, lays the groundwork for ending the Affordable Care Act which will remove tens of millions of Americans from the health insurance they get. Now, there is nothing wrong with change. We can always improve. I would hope that during the course of this debate, my Republican friends who want to repeal the Affordable Care Act will come down and tell us what their plan is, how, in fact, they are going to provide quality, cost-effective health care to all Americans. Well, you know what? They all voted against the Affordable Care Act. Senator Enzi is right. We did not get one Republican to vote for it. They have had eight years to be thinking about how they're going to come up with a new plan. And I would hope, but I do not expect one Republican to come to the floor and say, oh yeah, we're going to throw 20, 30 million people out of their health insurance. This is our new plan. This is how we're going to provide health care to those people. They have no ideas. Their theme is to repeal and then delay. Or someday they're going to come up with a new plan. You don't destroy a house without having another house in which people to live. You don't throw 30 million people off of health care without having a plan to provide health care to those people. Many Republicans have been talking about for years, they want to end Medicare as it presently exists, a program which is life and death for millions of seniors. And they want to voucherize Medicare, give people a check and then let them go out to the private insurance market and get the best deal they can. Imagine that you are an 85-year-old senior citizen who has been diagnosed with cancer, and you get your check for whatever it may be. We don't know what it will be, 7000 8000 9000 And you go to the insurance company, you say, I've got $9,000 
I'm 85. I've been diagnosed with cancer. I give me an insurance program which will take care of my medical needs, my hospital needs, and the insurance agent will laugh in your face because $9,000 or $8,000 will last you at most for a one week. That is their plan. The American people are outraged at the high cost of prescription drugs in this country. Let us be clear, because of the power of the pharmaceutical industry and their lobbying and their campaign contributions, a power that exists, by the way, not only influencing Republicans, but too many Democrats as well. We pay the highest prices in the world for prescription drugs. In fact, one out of six Americans who go to a doctor to get a prescription for an illness can't even afford to fill the prescription. And yet under the Republican proposal, if you eliminate the Affordable Care Act, the donut hole, which now helps seniors pay for their prescription drugs, will be eliminated and prescription drugs for seniors could rise by as much as 50%. Oh, and by the way, at a time when we have more income and wealth inequality than any other major country on earth, when the very, very rich are getting richer while the middle class shrinks, the Republican proposal not only throws 20 to 30 million people off of health insurance, not only raises the price of prescription drugs for seniors, not only moves forward to privatize Medicare, but shock of all shocks, our Republican colleagues want to give massive tax breaks to the top 2%. I thought that was absolutely epic, and I got chills listening to him there because everything he said was correct. Now, there were so many good points that he made. I thought that I wanted to re-emphasize them. So, for example, he discusses how the Republicans are planning to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which would throw 30 million people immediately off of their current health insurance plan. Now, he states, you don't destroy a house before you give people another place to live. This is just common sense. I have no problem reforming the Affordable Care Act. In fact, I think it needs to be reformed quite urgently. But you don't just repeal it without proposing a different solution. If you do that, it will be a catastrophe. And Republicans are doing this specifically for political reasons, and they're not thinking about the real-world consequences that it would have. If 30 million people are thrown off of their health insurance plan, people would die. But they're doing this because they want to win political points. It's really just grotesque. And his point about them not coming up with a plan... I thought that that was a brilliant analogy. Yeah, you don't destroy a house before you give someone a new place to live. Now, another point he makes that I don't think people talk about enough is that he discusses how a repeal of the Affordable Care Act would force rural hospitals to shut down because they would lose their funding. And if you live in a rural area, then the distance between you and a hospital would increase, and then that would lead to people dying when there's medical emergencies. So a repeal of the Affordable Care Act it shouldn't even be on the table. We absolutely need to reform it. And I think that the Affordable Care Act was the wrong solution to our broken healthcare system to begin with. I've always maintained that we need a single-payer system. But 
if you're not going to have a single-payer system, at a minimum, you need a public option. And when Democrats had a supermajority, they didn't even do that. So now it's coming back to bite them in the ass because they have this Affordable Care Act, which is basically broken and needs to be reformed. And that job is now in the hands of Republicans. And they want to just complete and utterly destroy it. Well, what's going to happen is it will lead to more people being uninsured than before the Affordable Care Act was passed. So it's going to be a disaster. Now, we also talked about the pitfalls that would inevitably come to fruition if you turn Medicare into a voucher program. He said if you're 85 years old and you try to find insurance with the check that they send you, whether it's $7,000, $8,000, or $9,000, while you might be excited to get that check and think, oh, I might actually be able to find a cheaper insurance plan and have some more money, and that might actually seem like something that is uh, appetizing, it's not because when you take that money into insurance offices, you're going to get laughed out of there because that's not going to be enough to cover your insurance. So you're going to be lucky to find even the most basic insurance plan with that. So it's not the option. The, uh, the only solution is to completely get off of our current system of healthcare where all of our healthcare and insurance is in the hands of private companies because then they rip people off. Now, he also discussed prescription drugs and described how the health insurance industry is able to rip off Americans by bribing politicians. And my favorite part was that he even called out Democrats, too. I mean, when I was watching this, I literally, like, shouted, damn, because he was just he was on fire. Like, I think that he went in to this rant with a specific speech and what he wanted to say, but I think he just kind of went off the cuff there because... That was just, that was brilliant. It was a reality check that every single idiot in Congress needed to hear. And there were also things not in the video that he talked about. So he explained how the Affordable Care Act is not perfect, but it's just a matter of fixing it and building upon it, not destroying what little progress we've made with it. And he also talked about how polling indicates that Americans actually want to spend more money on Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security, not less. So these are the things that will resonate with the American people. And I wish that all of the Democrats would take note as to what he's doing here because he is being a populist. He's speaking about things that are common sense that the American people by and large agrees with. He's looking specifically at polling and he's saying, if you cut Medicare, you are going against the American people. You are going against democracy. So everything about this speech is just amazing. And I initially was interested in watching the speech because of the viral portion where he pulls up a Trump tweet. And I'll talk about that in a different segment. But I mean, everything else about it was just golden. I would highly encourage you to watch the entire speech because it was great. Bernie Sanders was on fire. Bernie Sanders has been on fire. But you can tell that Bernie Sanders that we're seeing in this video is a lot different than the Bernie Sanders that we saw during the election who had to swallow his pride and campaign for Hillary Clinton, someone who he clearly did not believe in. So this is the Bernie Sanders that we're going to continue to see, and I absolutely love it and adore Bernie Sanders and wish that more politicians in Congress would emulate this strategy, which is just appealing to the American people and calling out people who are wrong. With it being evident that Republicans are in fact going to be repealing the Affordable Care Act as they've promised for the last seven years, well, Bernie Sanders made a speech on the Senate floor that demonstrates exactly how you hold someone accountable. So he's holding Donald Trump accountable by using his own words against him, and he blew up a gigantic Trump tweet and literally brought it to the floor of the Senate, and he sent a very clear message to Donald Trump, and I hope that all of the Democrats in Congress pay attention to this, because this 
is how you hold someone accountable. Within a couple of weeks, we are going to have a new president. Donald Trump will be inaugurated as president. And I think it is interesting that we listen to what Donald Trump said during the campaign. The Democrats hear what he had to say during the campaign, what he campaigned on, and more importantly, Republicans listen and hear what their leader had to say about these issues. And this is what Donald Trump said, and he didn't say it once in the middle of the night, he didn't say it in an interview. This was a central part of his campaign. This is what he asked millions of elderly people and working class people to vote for him on. These are the principles that Donald Trump ran and won the presidency on. On May 7th, 2015, Donald Trump tweeted, quote, I was the first and only potential GOP candidate to state there will be no cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. End of quote. On April 8, 2015, Mr. Trump said, and I quote, every Republican wants to do a big number on Social Security. That's not Bernie Sanders talking. That is Donald Trump talking. They want to do it on Medicare. They want to do it on Medicaid. And we can't do it. It's not fair to the people that have been paying in for years. End of quote. Not Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, our soon-to-be president. On March 29th, 2016, Mr. Trump said, and I quote, you know, Paul Ryan, Paul Ryan is the Republican Speaker of the House, you know, Paul wants to knock out Social Security, knock it down, way down. He wants to knock Medicare way down, and frankly, you're going to lose the election if you're going to do that. I am not going to cut it. And I'm not going to raise ages. And I'm not going to do all of the things they want to do. But they want to really cut it. And they want to cut it very substantially, the Republicans. And I'm going to do that. And the quote. What Mr. Trump said was exactly right. Here are the day. This is the day. They want to cut Social Security. They want to cut Medicare. They want to cut Medicaid. Mr. Trump was right. And millions of people voted for him on the belief that he would keep his word. Well, it seems to me that Mr. Trump right now has got to do one of two things. Number one, if all that he was talking about was campaign rhetoric, then what he was obliged to do now is to tell the American people I was lying. Yeah, I said that I would not support cuts to Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, but I was lying. It was a campaign ruse. I just said what came to my mind to get votes. I had no intention of keeping my word. And if that's what he believes, if that's what the case was, let him come forward and say that. But if that is not what the case is, if he was sincere, then I would hope that tomorrow or maybe today he could send out a tweet and tell his Republican colleagues to stop wasting their time and all of our time. And for Mr. Trump to tell the American people 
that he will veto any proposal that cuts Medicare, that cuts Medicaid, and that cuts Social Security. But I would hope that he could save us a whole lot of time by telling the American people that he was sincere in what he said during the campaign, that he was not lying. And if that is the case, we can end this discussion and get into the serious business of how we create a quality health care system guaranteeing health care to all people in a cost-effective way. Now that was a powerful speech. I loved it. Now, Bernie said Trump is obligated to do one of two things, either tell the American people that what he said was just campaign rhetoric or make a tweet and tell his Republican colleagues to stop wasting everyone's time and affirm to the American people that he will veto any cuts to Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security as he did in fact promise during the campaign trail. This is brilliant because he's not just calling on Donald Trump to act, he's telling Donald Trump with his own words, this is what you said you're going to do. Now put your money where your mouth is and actually do it. Actually stand up for the American people. Now a lot of people assumed that by bringing his tweet onto the Senate floor, he did it to, you know, help his speech go viral or to be witty and humorous. But no, this visual aid was important because sometimes when you're trying to hold someone accountable, you just got to bring what they say to the public. And if you just blow it up on a big poster board and you bring it to Congress that will be broadcasted for the world to see on C-SPAN, that's brilliant. It's absolutely a brilliant strategy that I think all Democrats need to pay attention to and emulate. And we already see Chuck Schumer doing the same thing, using Donald Trump's tweets and his own words against him. Donald Trump literally bragged about being the only Republican who vowed to not cut Medicaid and Medicare and Social Security. So if you're going to allow him to do that, and allow him to get away with it, then the Democratic Party is a complete and utter failure. But what Bernie Sanders is doing here is he's really tying Donald Trump's hands by backing him into a corner. Donald Trump, he's an egomaniac, and Bernie Sanders knows this. So if Bernie Sanders reiterates to the American people what Donald Trump said during the campaign trail and basically sends a message to Trump, look, the American people is watching. They know what you promised them. And if you go against the American people and go back on your word, you're going to look like shit. Now, this is also great because it was kind of an underhanded slap to uh, Republicans in Congress. He's basically undermining them, subverting their authority and going right to Donald Trump and is reminding him what he said during the campaign. And of course, Trump is entitled to go back on his promise. But if you do that, have fun explaining it to the American people. So Bernie Sanders has the right strategy. And this is exactly how you hold someone accountable. You use their own words against them. And sometimes, you know, it takes a visual aid that might seem kind of goofy and might try to seem like he's trying to do it to be sensationalist and get a reaction and get media, cover media coverage, which it did. But I mean, it's the right strategy. You put those words that Donald Trump used right in front of the world and allow them to see it. And if Donald Trump goes back on that, there's going to be hell to pay from the American people. So Bernie Sanders is just, he's killing it. He's been on fire lately. And I, I think it's going to be very entertaining to watch him go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump because Bernie Sanders is not playing around. Bernie Sanders was screwed during the primaries and he's not going to be screwed again. And he's certainly not going to allow the American people to be screwed over. So honestly, kudos to Bernie Sanders. He is exactly what I want to see in every single politician in the country. 
So I think at this point, it's pretty evident that Bernie Sanders has officially become Michael Douglas in the Falling Down movie because he's just done with bullshit in general. So he was on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow, and he basically issued a threat to Republicans and said that if they try to repeal Obamacare, if they try to cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, then there's going to be hell to pay. And he also uh, shed some light on the type of resistance that they would be facing. If you think the phones are going to light up because of what they did the other day, you're going to see phones really light up when they try to cut Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security. And here is the most important point I think that people have got to understand. The Republicans think they have a mandate. Let us not forget that Trump lost the popular vote by almost three million votes, that on virtually every major issue facing the people of this country, whether it is cutting Social Security or expanding Social Security, whether it's raising the minimum wage, whether it's pay equity, rebuilding our infrastructure, the American people want to go forward in a progressive way. They want, Republicans want, the wealthiest people to stop paying their fair share of taxes. The truth is, and I say this not in a particularly partisan way, the Republican ideology is way out of touch with where ordinary Americans are. Our job is to bring the American people into the process and say, do you really want to give huge tax breaks to billionaires and cut Social Security and Medicare. The American people do not want that to happen, and our job is to mobilize them through social media, through rallies out on the streets. Yeah, and the failure of the progressive movement, and let's be honest about it, is we have not mobilized people around that agenda. And the Republicans have able, been able to develop wedge issues and win elections with the help of the Koch brothers and their billionaire friends. But you think basically from this opposition position there is an opportunity to mobilize people around absolutely, those issues? Absolutely. You've got to fight back as people have throughout the history of this country. All right? People have stood up and fought back. And the most important point is on, as I said a moment ago, on all of these issues, the majority of the people are with us. And we have got to go out and reach out to people, bring them into the political process, and fight for the kind of nation that we know we can become. If there's anything that I learned running for president, is there are, and this is not rhetoric, this is truth, there are so many decent, good, wonderful people out there who want to create a non-discriminatory society, who want to create a society of environmental justice, of social justice, of economic justice. I believe that is the majority spirit in this country, and our job is to mobilize those people. So yeah, let's call that what it is. That was a threat to Republicans that... Bernie Sanders is not going to stand for their corruption. And this is a form of corruption because when they try to privatize Social Security and privatize Medicare and Medicaid, they're doing exactly what their donors want them to do. I mean, the financial services industry has been salivating over Social Security for decades now, and they desperately want it to get done. There's going to be a lot of lobbying in favor of privatizing Social Security, or at least partially privatizing it, and that's not acceptable. If you privatize it even a little bit, you destroy it because Social Security already isn't paying out enough for senior citizens to survive. So if you make any changes to it that impacts the American people in a negative way, you destroy the program. You just destroy the program. So Bernie Sanders is not playing any games. And if they do, in fact, try to do anything that would jeopardize these social safety net programs, there's going to be hell to pay. And I love he said... Uh, if you think the phones are going to light up because of what they did the other day, referring to their attempt to gut the OCE, 
then you're going to see the phones really light up when they try to gut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Now, this is basically the strategy that he proposed during his campaign. He said that, you know, these are issues that are difficult to pass because of the corruption in Congress, like money and politics. So if the American people really want a single-payer system, you can't just expect me to tell Congress to send me a bill and I'll sign it. You actually have to show up in Washington, D.C. and demand it. Show them that you will not tolerate anything but a single-payer healthcare system. And this is the strategy that Bernie Sanders is bringing to the Democratic Party, and Chuck Schumer is now on board with it. And it I think it's a fantastic strategy, and it's proven now that it works, because we saw the other day that when the Republicans tried to sneakily gut the Office of Congressional Ethics, they received a shit ton of phone calls, and then they were forced to backpedal, and now they're trying to hide from it. So this works, and Bernie Sanders knows that it works, and he's telling them, if you thought you were embarrassed when you tried to gut the OCE, just you wait. You're going to be really embarrassed if you try to cut Medicare and Medicaid. Now, he also said Republicans think they have a mandate, but let us not forget that Trump lost the popular vote by almost 3 million votes and that on virtually every major issue, the American people want to go forward in a progressive way. The truth is the Republican ideology is way out of touch, and this is something that I want to get a little bit more into because it's really important what he's saying here. Republicans do not, in fact, have a mandate. And one thing that we have to say over and over again so that way it gets through is that Republicans are a minority party. They're in control of all three branches of government, and only 26% of the country are actually registered Republicans. So they are, in fact, a minority party, a majority of the country either dislikes or despises Republicans, and furthermore, they're typically only victorious in elections when turnout is low. So, for example, in 2014, they also claimed that they had a mandate back then because they took back the Senate, but only 36.4% of the American public actually came out to vote. This was the lowest turnout for a midterm election since 1942. And just to illustrate how low turnout was in 2014, in certain states like Missouri, Washington State, or Delaware, turnout decreased more than 25%. And they know that lower turnout is a win for them, hence why they keep enacting these arbitrary voter ID laws to suppress the votes, which tends to hurt demographics that predominantly favor the Democratic Party, such as the working class and minority voters. And in fact, there are more documented cases of voter suppression than there were actual cases of voter fraud in recent elections. So for example, according to The Nation, one man could not obtain a voter ID card in Wisconsin, even though he had his driver's license and his social security card and proof of residency. And this is just one of many examples. See, Republicans will frame this as a common sense policy, but really, they make people jump through hoops to get this voter ID. And in North Carolina, quote, Democracy North Carolina documented more than 2,300 cases of voters whose ballots were rejected in 2014 because of the state's elimination of same-day registration and out-of-precinct voting. That was 1,150 times greater than the two cases of voter impersonation committed in North Carolina from 2002 to 2012 out of 35 million votes cast. And when it comes to the House, lower turnout also increases the chances that Republicans will win there, but they also were able to win by gerrymandering, and they were shameless about it. They redrew districts that favored Republicans more heavily than Democrats, and they didn't even care how ridiculous those districts looked. So it's absolutely the case, and I want Democrats, specifically congressional Democrats, to get it through their heads that the Republican Party does not have a mandate. If you only win when turnout is low and when the American people are demoralized and they don't want to come out to vote, 
you don't have a mandate from the American people. If turnout was higher, then they would have lost. They don't want people to vote because they're afraid when people vote that they'll lose. That makes them cowards. So they don't have a mandate, and we need to make sure that we make it very clear that they know that we know they do not have a mandate. Now, there's another portion in there that I wanted to talk about. Bernie said the failure of the progressive movement is that we have not mobilized people out on the streets. And I think that it's good to have introspection, and I agree with him here. But I wish that he kind of would have went a little bit deeper into this topic because there's a very specific reason why people are not mobilizing. And it's because, as Bernie Sanders often states, they're working longer hours for lower wages. So if you don't have time to go out and protest, well, obviously, you're not going to be protesting as often. And if you work two jobs or three jobs, of course, you're not going to have time for it. And certainly, if you're making less money, you're not going to have the resources to protest. I mean, a plane ticket to Washington, D.C. is not free. So actually mobilizing it. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes resources, but I like Bernie Sanders' strategy because he's not calling on people to show up to Washington, D.C. because that's simply unrealistic. He's telling people to organize with their local grassroots parties and organizations and show up to local resistance movements around their state. So, for example, on the 15th, it's the Democratic Day of Action when they are going to protest the inauguration of Donald Trump. He's saying you don't have to come to D.C. to do this. So I think that this is a great way to really keep Republicans in check because, of course, it's the case that they're puppets and that they're controlled by their donors. But we can keep them in check if we keep the pressure on them. So Bernie Sanders is right here and everything he's saying is true. I love it. So, again, Bernie Sanders, he has no chill. And he's on fire lately. So this threat is something that the Republicans need to get through their head. Because if they want to do these things that screw over the American people, we're not going to take it lying down. So I've said it once, I'll say it again. Bernie Sanders is on fire lately. And he is quickly emerging as the most prominent politician in America because all of his policy ideas are starting to catch on. And he's not even president, but he's still having a huge effect. He's had a greater impact on policy than Donald Trump has. And Donald Trump is the incoming president. So Bernie Sanders, he's just on fire and he's really fighting for progressive values. Now, to show just how Bernie Sanders' ideas are catching on, New York will be the first state to implement free college tuition and they're basically just copying and pasting Bernie Sanders' plan. The New York Times reports, Governor Andrew Cuomo seized on a potent issue that energized younger Democrats during the presidential race, pledging on Tuesday to cover tuition costs at state colleges for hundreds of thousands of middle- and low-income New Yorkers. Under the governor's plan, college students who have been accepted to a state or city university in New York, including two-year community colleges, would be eligible provided they or their family earn $125,000 or less a year. Now, this is a victory that's monumental for progressives because it's not just about New York, even though that's really important and they're a very populous state, so this would benefit millions of Americans. Well, this could have a domino effect, so we could see tuition-free colleges in New York and then California and maybe Oregon, Washington, and pretty soon we could see nationwide tuition-free college policies. So this is great, and Bernie Sanders was fired up when he was talking about it. At a time when we have a president-elect who thinks it's a great idea to give hundreds of billions of dollars in tax breaks to the top two-tenths of one percent, we have a better idea. And that idea, and that idea is to make public colleges 
and universities tuition-free for every person in New York State, in Vermont, and in America. If New York State does it this year, mark my words, state after state will follow. Now, this is a plan that would not even be on the Democratic Party's agenda had it not been for the presidential campaign of Senator Bernie Sanders. Yet, there's someone who wants to take some credit for it. So Hillary Clinton broke her week-long silence on Twitter to state, delighted that Governor Cuomo proposed free college for people making less than 25000 in New York, a plan Senator Sanders and I worked hard on. Oh, you mean the plan that you adopted to get him to drop out on a door shoe that you never talked about until you discovered that one third of millennials were not voting for you and that they were going third party? That plan? Is that the one you're talking about, Hillary? <laughs> She's shameless. She's absolutely shameless. And I'm not just talking about this because I like making fun of Hillary Clinton. Uh, I'm talking about this because it's very important that Bernie Sanders gets credit for this, because Bernie Sanders has a lot of populist, progressive ideas that I want to catch on, that I desperately want to catch on. So if politicians see that Bernie Sanders' free college tuition plan is in fact popular, then maybe they'll start looking at his other plans, like a $15 minimum wage, like a single-payer healthcare system. And so I want the Bernie Sanders effect to continue. This is not the Hillary Clinton effect that you're seeing. This is the Bernie Sanders effect. So Hillary Clinton, you don't get any credit for this. Sorry, Bernie Sanders is the one who gets credit. So I'm really proud of Bernie Sanders because he took a presidential campaign that was epic and he is turning it into something that's that's honestly unbelievable. I never thought that he would had this big of an impact if he wasn't actually elected as president, but he is. He's proving me wrong and I love it. So uh, keep it up, Bernie, this is great. So after witnessing eight years of Republican obstructionism in Congress, I find it outrageous that some Democrats are willing to, quote, work with Trump in the spirit of bipartisanship and not block every single thing they try to do, especially after they locked up the Supreme Court nomination that Obama should have rightfully nominated uh, and they wouldn't even have a hearing on it. So if you are willing to work with the Republicans after that, uh, I think you're a disgrace. Now, I predicted previously that they're going to roll over and die and allow Republicans to do any and everything that they want to screw over the American people and not put up a fight. So I'm hoping that they prove me wrong. And there's been some indications that some Democrats, namely Chuck Schumer, who's someone who I generally dislike or I don't like him at all. <laughs> I'll be honest. I don't like him at all. I think that he's spineless. He's too centrist. Uh, and he's a political coward. He's showing us that he might actually fight back. There's several signs that indicate that he's taking some cues from Bernie Sanders and will actually fight to stop the Republicans from screwing over the American people. And I was honestly surprised. So take a look. I am not afraid of Donald Trump. I am not afraid of the Republicans. And we're going to hold their feet to the fire. I am actually excited about this opportunity. It's an opportunity. They, there are so many contradictions in this administration. I mean, one, we're going after their nominees. You know, McConnell wanted to let all of them just get through in these quick little two-hour hearings, get all of them done in two weeks. We're saying no way. Price, the guy from HHS. Donald Trump said when he campaigned he wouldn't cut Medicare and Social Security, but he turns around and, and nominates as his HHS secretary. Guy made his career on cutting Medicare and Medicaid. 
We're going to slam him on these things. He said he's going to clean the swamp. Who's his cabinet? Billionaires? Uh, people who own huge businesses, people who have been part of that swamp for a very long time. In other words, there was a certain populism, to, you can say, and a lot of things about Donald Trump, and I work really hard against him. But he had certain populism to him, a false populism, but a populism. He now has sold out to the hard right, mm. the pro-business, pro-corporate, pro-elite group. And I think we can really nail him on this. We can be very strong and unflinching and hold his feet to the fire. The theme of the speech I gave today is we're going to hold him accountable. So right there, Chuck Schumer is telling me everything that I want to hear. Do I believe him yet? Not really, honestly, but uh, he's at least saying the right thing. So if you are telling me that you're going to hold Republicans accountable, I'm going to hold you accountable if you don't hold them accountable. So uh, I like that. Now, in addition to just blocking his appointments, uh, Chuck Schumer has vowed to block any Supreme Court nominee that Trump puts forward. Is, is there an argument to be made, though, if it is a fair statement that that was basically a, a stolen seat, so it yeah. isn't yeah. theirs to fill, then in that case, no nominee would be legitimate because that seat should have been filled by I President Obama. It's hard for me to imagine a nominee that Donald Trump would choose that would get Republican support that we could support. So you're right. And so you would do your best to hold the seat open? Absolutely. Yeah, I think that they should block any and all nominees that the Republicans put forward. That was basically a stolen nomination. Obama was the one who was supposed to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And even though I disliked Merrick Garland because he was too centrist and he wasn't someone who I think would overturn Citizens United, it was Obama's duty. That's his constitutional obligation to nominate someone. And they didn't allow him to do that. They, If you won't even allow the Democratic Party to hold a hearing about Merrick Garland, then you're just unreasonable. So I think that the Democrats should go tit for tat and be just as unreasonable as Republicans were and block this nomination for four years because a Democrat, whenever that person gets into office, should be the one that makes this appointment. Not a Republican, that's unfair because if you allow them to appoint a new SCOTUS nominee, then you're rewarding a year worth of obstructionism and you're rewarding their obstructionism in general you're proving to them that that's a good strategy so you need to do what they did and regardless of how much pressure they put on you how much they try to shame you in fox news you hold your ground you don't budge now additionally schumer is vowing to fight back any attempts that they have to repeal the affordable care act and i think i'm seeing a relatively effective strategy emerging we had a Great meeting with the president. Uh, virtually all of our caucuses attended. He was very inspiring, um, telling us uh, we worked out, we were working out our strategy, and we have a great deal of optimism that the good things that have happened in ACA are going to stay, and that our Republican colleagues don't quite know what to do. They're like the dog who caught the bus. They can repeal, but they have nothing to put in its place, and that means so many good things go away. That was basically the summary of the meeting. It was probably the last time the president will address uh, the joint caucuses together. It was valuable to hear, of course, because the first big fight of this new Congress will be over health care. Republicans are plotting and soon will be executing a full-scale full assault on the three pillars that support the American health care system, 
the Affordable Care Act, Medicare, and Medicaid. The Republican plan to cut health care wouldn't make America great again, it would make America sick again and lead to chaos instead of affordable care. You can't keep all the things that Americans like about the ACA and get rid of the rest without throwing the entire health care system, not just those on ACA, but those with private insurance, into chaos. Now, the problem with this is that, you know, the Republicans have complete and utterly taken control of the framing when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. So it may be too late for Democrats to reframe it, but I like that they're using the term make America sick again. That was trending on Twitter. It's something that's catchy. It's something that the American people need to be made aware of, and it's simple. So, you know, I see a lot of potential here. Now, the thing is that we can't get too optimistic just yet, because even though Chuck Schumer is telling us what we want to hear, Bernie Sanders, you know, even though it's clear Chuck Schumer is taking a lot of cues from Bernie Sanders at this point, Bernie Sanders, you know, he's still somewhat skeptical. Are you confident in the plans, in the strategic planning, in the uh, operations thus far? Uh, no. I think uh, Chuck is off to a good start. Uh, he has brought together some very, very good people, and he understands something. And that is that at the end of the day, the way we're going to bring about change, the way we're going to stop Trump, is not just inside the beltway. You need an outside the beltway strategy. Uh, and that's, in a sense, what my job is as part of the Democratic leadership. What does that mean? What that means is that on January 15th, for the first time in the modern history of the Democratic Party, Democrats are going to be organizing rallies all across this country uh, in opposition to the uh, Republican budget, which calls for throwing 30 million people off of health care, throwing their insurance away. Uh, privatizing Medicare, making massive cuts in Medicaid, and at the same time giving huge tax breaks to the wealthy. So what I think Chuck understands, and what Democrats increasingly understand, is you can't just go to fundraisers with wealthy people. You gotta get out in the real world, you gotta mobilize people, you gotta educate people, you gotta listen to people, and that is the transformation they need, which, by the way, is why I am strongly supporting Keith Ellison to be the new chair of the DNC. So I'm seeing a lot of good signs from Chuck Schumer, even though I've always disliked him. I mean, he's someone who was against the Iran nuclear deal, which would basically prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. It was a peace deal because Republicans were beating the war drums to invade Iran. And because of this deal, that basically prevented us from going to war with Iran and invading Iran. So Chuck Schumer was against that. So I dislike Chuck Schumer for that, as well as many other reasons. I hate that he's as centrist and corporatist as they come, but he's showing that he's at least smart enough to want to win at least, right? He knows he's a sellout and he still wants to be a sellout, but the bottom line is that he wants the Democratic Party to win. And he has taken a lot of cues from Bernie Sanders. He's endorsed Keith Ellison's bid to be the new DNC chair. You can tell that Bernie Sanders is having a huge impact on the way that Chuck Schumer is governing and calling out Republicans. And I like it. But Chuck Schumer better stick to his word. Actually, walk the walk. Because you're talking the talk right now, but I want to see you put those words into action and actually do the things that you say you're going to do and obstruct Republicans from screwing us over and actually fight against their attempts to harm the American people. 
Even though progressives such as myself have expressed reservations about supporting Keith Ellison's bid to be the next DNC chair, namely because of some of his foreign policy stances, well, he's given us another reason to support him over Tom Perez, and that's because he's vowing to ban lobbyist contributions to the DNC. Now, when you juxtapose his stance on this with Tom Perez's, the choice becomes even more clear. So Keith Ellison states, I think it's important that people feel that the party is their party. There is a pragmatic, perhaps too pragmatic step that you can say, we'll just take whatever money from whatever source in whatever amount. But once you do that, I think you cross a line where people do not feel that the party is really theirs. Now, according to the Huffington Post, President Barack Obama banned lobbyist contributions to the Democratic National Committee after winning the 2008 election. But the then DNC chair, Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz, quietly lifted the ban during Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential run. In a December interview with Huffington Post, Ellison chief rival, Labor Secretary Tom Perez, refused to rule out lobbyist donations. I think we have to have everything on the table, Perez said. We have to have a conversation where we bring in all the stakeholders and say, what is the vision of the Democratic Party? Lobbyists contribute only a small fraction of the money raised by the Democratic Party, and while they do grease the gears in Washington, D.C., they're paid to do the bidding of other big donors, CEOs, private equity bigwigs, and other well-heeled operators who few politicians are willing to blacklist from the donor roles. But for Ellison, the lobbyist contributions are a matter of public perception and voter engagement. People need to feel like, hey, you know this Democratic Party? It's my party, Ellison said. And part of what gives them that sense that it is their party and that they possess it, that they own it, is that they pay for it. And he's 100% right. And I think that this really does communicate to progressives that he is serious about reforming the Democratic Party and putting control of the party back in the hands of voters as opposed to donors. Now, when it comes to Tom Perez here, they didn't unequivocally state that he would not reinstate this ban on lobbyist contributions to the DNC, but let me just decode what he's saying because he's being very manipulative in his language. So by saying you want to, quote, bring all stakeholders in, that means that you want to uh, allow donors to have a say as well. You want to allow big donors as well as uh, voters to have a stake and have a say in where the Democratic Party goes and what it does. And when you do that, you inevitably set up a situation where the Democratic Party governs at the behest of their big donors and not the voters, because obviously, as a normal citizen, I can't compete with lobbyists. I could submit a donation here and there to politicians, but I'll never be able to compete with a lobbying firm. I'll never be able to compete with Comcast and voice to them that I want net neutrality to be permanent. Because Comcast has more money than me, and Comcast can donate millions of dollars to the super PACs of politicians that could donate to the DNC and basically wipe out any say that I have and every other American has. So when you allow all stakeholders to come to the table, what you're really saying here, Tom, is that you want to allow the Democratic Party to continue being corrupt and to listen to their donors. What Keith Ellison is doing here is he's saying, no, once and for all, we're going to close the door to the donors and the DNC will not be listening to donors any longer. This party belongs to the people and they have to feel as though it belongs to them too. And you start by taking this step in the right direction and banning contributions from lobbyists. So this to me is a no-brainer. And Tom Perez's unwillingness to unequivocally state that he's going to ban contributions from lobbyists, it's a joke. It shows that Tom Perez is just more of the status quo. And if the DNC goes with Tom Perez and undermines the endorsement of Bernie Sanders and Chuck Schumer and many labor movements uh, and labor unions, 
then they're clueless and they don't want to win. They're choosing to lose and be corrupt rather than win and not be corrupt. So we have to make sure that Keith Ellison wins. I know there's a lot that he's done that has gotten under my skin and there's a lot that I disagree with him on. But again, when it comes to economic policy, I think that in restructuring the Democratic Party so that way they operate at the behest of voters as opposed to donors, that's the only way you can win again. And I don't want Trump to be in office for eight years. I want Republicans to be kicked out of Congress. I want a Democratic Party that represents the people and not the donors. So Keith Ellison understands that and that's why he should be the DNC chair. So if you've been watching the Humanist Report for a long time, I've talked about how the DNC and the Democratic Party tried to delegitimize Bernie Sanders and smear Bernie Sanders, and recently I've been talking about the plethora of arbitrary attacks they've been using against Keith Ellison to defeat him in his bid to be the next DNC chair. Well, there's a new article that was published in The Week that I think does a fantastic job at showing just how grotesque the Democrats have been and the dirty tricks that they've employed to try to defeat Keith Ellison. So they explain, the White House reportedly did not like the choice of Ellison. A series of objections materialized and Perez entered the race. First, they said the DNC chair should be a full-time job, so Ellison dutifully promised to resign from Congress should he win. Then, liberals dredged up a bunch of opposition research from decades ago. In the 90s, Ellison had defended Louis Farrakhan, the controversial leader of the religious group Nation of Islam, then recanted and apologized. On cue, Clinton megadonor Haim Saban called him an anti-Semite. As Alex Shepard writes at New Republic, the odd thing about this is that Perez is also a pretty strong left-winger and a Latino. He could easily have challenged Ellison on the merits alone, but instead, centrist liberals are trying to be beat Ellison with a lot of cheap shots. It smacks very much of Clinton's campaign against Sanders, which leveraged right-wing propaganda about single-payer, or her campaign against Obama in 2008, which had odious racist and Islamophobic undertones. And this last aspect is particularly nauseating. Ellison is a Muslim, the first ever elected to Congress, and Donald Trump just won the presidency partly on the back of shockingly bigoted rhetoric about Islam. Many centrist liberals are palpably uncomfortable with allowing a black Muslim to run the party in such circumstances. As one longtime Obama political ally told Politico's Glenn Thrush, is he really the guy we need right now when we are trying to get all of those disaffected white working class people to rally around our message of economic equality. This also smacks of Clintonite politics. In 1992, Bill Clinton famously triangulated against black radicals, and in 2008, Hillary argued that you need to cater to white identity politics to get enough white voters to win, but President Obama himself already decisively disproved the strong version of this thesis, rolling up enough working class voters of all races with a powerful working class message. One third of his 2012 coalition was made up of whites without a college degree to win convincingly twice. It's worth noting as well that Ellison's congressional district is 63% white, which he won by 47 points in the election. On the other hand, as Jeff Stein argues at Vox, beating back one of Bernie Sanders' most high-profile allies with an underhanded campaign is no small political risk either. Many Sanders supporters are already quite annoyed at how the DNC was obviously in the tank for Clinton during the primary, and the fact that Ellison and Perez are quite close ideologically 
logically only adds to the frustration. It seems as though Ellison is unacceptable only because he didn't kiss the right rings during the primary. It risks reopening the primary divide at a terribly unfortunate time and further alienating young voters for no real substantive reason. So there's a lot in there. Now, I, I do take issue with one portion. They claim that Ellison and Perez are ideologically close, and even though Perez does have more progressive policy positions than other centrist Democrats, so for example, uh, to be fair to him, he does support the fight for 15, well, he's a corporatist in many other ways. So for example, he vehemently advocated for the TPP. He went against labor unions as the labor secretary to fight for the TPP, and he couldn't explain why he supported it and undermine uh, the desire of labor unions to defeat this corrupt trade bill. Now also, um, he's indicated that he doesn't want to ban lobbyists from contributing to the DNC. That makes them completely different. The difference is night and day, in my opinion, honestly, between corporatism and progressivism. The difference is very clear. So I see a strong difference there. And what's interesting here is that after the DNC and the Democratic Party's attempts to smear Bernie Sanders supporters as sexist Bernie bros during the primaries, we could play that same game right now. We can say that anyone who's against Keith Ellison is a racist Islamophobe, but we're not doing that because we can win on the merits alone. We can win based on the policy substance. And the reason why Democrats are resorting to these types of smear tactics is because they have no policy substance. They don't want someone from the progressive wing of the party to win. They don't want someone who is going to strip donors of the power in the party because they like all those contributions. They think it's easier to beat Republicans if they can take unlimited sums of money from super PACs. But Bernie Sanders has demonstrated that you cannot have a super PAC and you could still be successful. His campaign was unprecedented. I mean, he ran against the Clinton machine and he overcame a 60-point deficit. He captured 46% of the vote, and this was in spite of the unfair conditions that was the Democratic primary. It was a disaster. It was a disgrace. But Bernie Sanders almost overcame the odds in spite of that. So this notion that uh, you need donations from large corporations to win, it's complete and utterly bullshit now, and Bernie Sanders proved that it's bullshit, but the Democratic Party hasn't learned their lesson. They don't want to change, and so they're resorting to these dirty, cheap shots against uh, Keith Ellison because they know that's the only way they can try to defeat him. Well, I've got news for you guys. Uh, if you defeat Keith Ellison, you're going to be the real losers in the end because the Democratic Party, they have to change. If you don't change... You will not win, you will not defeat Republicans, and you certainly will not defeat Donald Trump in 2020. So you're going to be the real losers in the end, and you're going to lose all of your constituents to the Green Party or the Libertarian Party if you don't wake the fuck up. So Keith Ellison is the only choice for the DNC, and... You know, I, I wanted to share this story because I think that we have to be weary of these dirty tricks that the Democratic Party tries to employ. Also, they can win. Well, how about this? Why don't you represent the people and try to win based on that for once? President-elect Donald Trump has demonstrated on numerous occasions that he's not fully cognizant of very sensitive international situations, and his big mouth has already caused a lot of problems around the world. So recently, he took to Twitter to call out China and North Korea, and China responded by basically telling him to shut his big fat mouth. So according to Time, 
China has hit back at Donald Trump's claim that Beijing isn't doing enough to rein in rogue state North Korea, cautioning the U.S. president-elect not to escalate an already tense situation on the Korean peninsula through his liberal use of social media. On Monday evening, Trump took to Twitter to deny North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's claim that his nation was in the final stage of developing a nuclear-armed ballistic missile capable of hitting the U.S. mainland. Trump then followed up with another tweet to say China wasn't doing enough to temper the young despot's belligerence. China has been taking out massive amounts of money and wealth from the U.S. in totally one-sided trade, but won't help with North Korea. Nice, read the tweet. In response, China's foreign ministry spokesman, Gang Shuang, told a press briefing on Tuesday that his government's efforts were widely recognized and that we hope all sides will avoid remarks and actions to escalate the situation. The Korean Peninsula is the latest source of friction between the incoming Trump administration and China to be aired via the president-elect's Twitter account. Last month, Trump revealed he accepted a congratulatory phone call from Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen in a breach of almost four decades of diplomatic protocol. Beijing still claims sovereignty over the self-governing island despite its effective split from the mainland in 1949 following China's civil war. Trump has also frequently used Twitter to accuse China of underhand trade policies like currency manipulation that he claims have forced American jobs overseas. The real estate mogul has nominated at least two hard Hardline China trade critics Robert Leithizer and Peter Navarro to top posts in his administration. So basically, China is being the responsible adult here, and they're politely telling Donald Trump to shut the fuck up. Thank you, China. Now, I want to read the tweet that Donald Trump made about North Korea. He says, North Korea just stated that it is in its final stages of developing a nuclear weapon capable of reaching parts of the U.S. It won't happen. Now, this is stupid because you don't do something to provoke someone who's a certifiable maniac. Kim Jong-un has demonstrated time and again that... He's a loose cannon, he's a crazy person, and he has nuclear weapons. And I'm not necessarily worried about North Korea launching an attack on us, but if North Korea is provoked, I am worried that they could attack South Korea. And there's already been border scuffles between North and South Korea, and just in 2010, North Korea fired rockets at Yongpyong Island, and people died because of this. And also, the United States has multiple military bases in South Korea. So you're literally endangering not just South Korean lives, but American lives. I mean, I had a niece that was born on a military base in South Korea. These are real people, Donald Trump. And you don't realize that your words could have real-world consequences. You need to shut your big mouth. If you think that you want to take action against North Korea to stop them from developing ballistic missiles capable of reaching the U.S., you don't go to Twitter to announce it, dumbass. That's not what you do. And look, am I saying that I support China and what they're doing to basically prop up the North Korean regime? Well, no, I'm against that. They're, the relationship between China and North Korea is incredibly complex. They're doing it for a variety of reasons. Uh, a large portion of it is that China does not want to deal with the collapse of North Korea, namely because that's going to catalyze a huge refugee crisis, and uh, South Korea and China will both have to deal with this, and that's something that would cost a lot of money, it'd be very difficult to handle, and China is probably trying to avoid that. Now, that's one of multiple reasons as to why China props up the North Korean regime, but I mean, if you have reservations about a country, you don't go to Twitter and talk shit about them where they can see it. You do this behind closed doors. It's called diplomacy. Call up the Chinese ambassador. Actually go to China and meet with the president. I mean, this is something that a two-year-old would be doing. I, I don't understand 
how Donald Trump can't understand why this is inappropriate for a president to be doing. And furthermore, Donald Trump has illustrated time and again that he just doesn't know about really intense international situations. He's basically operating in an international community that's a minefield. There's so many complex situations and sensitive situations that could lead to war that he doesn't understand. I mean, Pakistan and India are very close to war with each other. They both have nuclear weapons, and Donald Trump is just speaking in a manner that's really cavalier about Pakistan, for example. So, Donald Trump's team, they've got to rein in his use of Twitter. They have to take his phone away. No more tweeting, Donald Trump, until you can learn to tweet responsibly. That sounds so stupid saying. But until you can tweet responsibly and actually maybe think for a second, maybe this will have consequences now that I'm going to be the president, until you can get that through your thick skull, his Twitter account uh, should be taken away. I think that it should be taken control of by someone from his administration. And just for the sake of not just the American people, Trump, but for the world, do us all a favor. Shut the fuck up. Nobody even wants you here. So I stumbled across a story that was really disturbing that's not receiving the coverage that it actually deserves. So Donald Trump, someone who's against net neutrality, he is tapping Rupert Murdoch, who is a right-wing billionaire responsible for producing propaganda networks in multiple countries like the United States and Australia and other countries. He's asking this guy to suggest people who he thinks should be appointed as the next FCC chair. So The Verge explains News Corp CEO Rupert Murdoch may have a significant influence in the next four years of American telecom policy. According to a new report from the New York Magazine's Gabrielle Sherman, President-elect Trump has asked the conservative Australian broadcast titan to submit names of his preferred candidates for chair of the Federal Communications Commission. Current chairman Tom Wheeler plans to step down when Trump takes office, and the president-elect is expected to nominate a successor in the weeks to come. There's no guarantee Trump will follow Murdoch's recommendations, but the news suggests Murdoch already wields significant influence in the incoming administration. Sherman's source says Murdoch is also lobbying for further conditions on AT&T's proposed acquisition of Time Warner, potentially because he sees the new conglomerate as a threat to his holdings. The FCC advisors on Trump's transition team have been staunch critics of Wheeler's work as FCC chair, which included historic new protections for net neutrality. Trump's incoming chair will likely seek to reverse those protections, although it's still unclear how difficult that process will be. Now, this story should give everyone nightmares. It's it's really it's really scary. The internet is at stake here. They're basically going to effectively gut net neutrality, which would destroy the internet as we know it. Now, this isn't just about the internet. What they're trying to do is get people to the FCC who will be friendly to the idea of allowing these large mergers between, for example, Comcast and Time Warner, which has not been allowed thus far. Now, when I say that the freedom of the internet is at stake, I'm not being hyperbolic here. Currently, internet service providers are required to be neutral in their delivery of internet services. So, for example, if Comcast sees Netflix as competition, well, they're currently not allowed to slow down Netflix's streaming service since they're required to treat everyone neutral. It's called net neutrality. So, if Republicans get their way, then what Comcast can do is they can then strangle the internet services of uh, Netflix, and then they could propose an alternative and say, well, look, Netflix, they're slow all of a sudden. Why don't you come to the new Comcast version of Netflix, and then they'll profit extremely well from that. And so it's a way to cut off competition. Uh, and worst off, I think, is that it actually sets up 
a huge problem when it comes to censorship. So for example, if a particular website reports on the shady businesses of Time Warner, well then Time Warner can strangle the internet speed of that website. So any traffic going to that website, they can really limit it so it's almost unbearable and people just stop trying to go to that website. They can do that and basically kill off the speech of people who are speaking out against them. They can uh, censor people who they disagree with. So if they see that there's too many people on YouTube that are speaking out against uh, right-wing policies, well, they could cut off the speed to YouTube. So what you're allowing is basically corporate fascism where telecommunications companies and internet service providers can control what we say and what we see. And it's really, really troubling. I mean, if you destroy the internet, then that hinders democracy because Twitter and Facebook, these are responsible for catalyzing the Arab Spring in 2011. Without this, I don't think people in Egypt or Tunisia would have been able to mobilize. So the internet is really important for democracy. And this is a utility that we all need. But Donald Trump and his appointment to the FCC, well, he's given us every indication that we are going to have to fight back like hell. Now, I want to remind everyone that Tom Wheeler was not originally keen on the idea of net neutrality. He was actually a former Comcast lobbyist, and Obama appointed him because he donated upwards of 500000 to Obama's presidential campaigns. So his appointment was the result of Obama rewarding a campaign donor, which is corruption. And one of the first duties that Tom Wheeler tried to do as new FCC chair was kill net neutrality. But Tom Wheeler's plan never came to fruition, and that's because... Because when he announced new rules that would create fast lanes for certain companies, uh, basically gutting net neutrality, well, he was met with resistance that he's never seen before. So, for example, people literally showed up to his house and refused to allow him to leave to go to his job at the FCC uh, when he announced that he was going to betray America. So, I'm sorry, but we can't let you go to work today because you work for Comcast, Verizon, AT&T, and not for the people. And so we can't let you go there because you're selling us out on internet neutrality, and that's not okay with us. So we want to know which side you're stand on, up, Tom. Stand up. So, so wait a minute. I remember meeting you. Yeah, you did. Yes, you did. Good to meet you. Is Brian? Is that Kevin. Right? Kevin. Save the internet, Tom. Great. It's not good enough to be doing this hybrid crap. Reclassification you can't all the pretend. way. There's not, this is not a photo op for you to pretend like you're saving the internet. We I'm know. standing here. I'm saving. Put the video on. It's no, you're not. It's, we've been no, you're not saving the internet. It's about the people have said. Tom, the people have said. Don't let very clear the what internet they want. die. Time, Time to reclassify. Don't, Don't let the internet die. die. Time to reclassify. Don't Don't let let it's not a negotiation. Die. The people Time have said. You can't ignore the people, Tom. Thanks, guys. You can't ignore the people. Thanks. I Don't let the internet die. We're sticking around. We're sticking around. We're sticking around. So what am I supposed to do? I, That's I your problem. That's your problem. We don't Maybe think you're working for us right now. You're working for the Comcast. It's not to save Comcast. It's not to save Comcast. Which side are you on, Tom? I'm on your side. I'm on your side. I'm on Tom. Which side are you on? Are you with the people, Tom, or with the telecoms? And again, this isn't just about uh, keeping the internet free and open. This is about consolidation of the market. They want someone who's going to be uh, approving these gigantic mergers between uh, Time Warner and Comcast. But I just have a very uh, important message to whoever is Donald Trump's FCC chair. If you plan on destroying the internet, guess what you have to look forward to? Grassroots resistance 
on a level that you've never seen before because we will do everything in our power to stop you. And you could bet your ass that you will be stopped. There will be hell to pay. Leave the internet alone. Keep your hands off of it. So President Obama is about to leave office and he is leaving us with one last parting gift. That is the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act of 2016 buried deep down in a defense spending bill that almost nobody knows about. And the implications of this bill are pretty troubling. So according to Global Research, last Friday, President Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which authorizes $611 billion for military spending in 2017. Leaving aside the year-on-year increase and the huge sum overall, buried deep inside its hefty documentation, the NDAA authorizes the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act of 2016. Senator Rob Portman justified the act with their is currently no single U.S. governmental agency or department charged with the national-level development, integration, and synchronization of -of whole-of-government strategies to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation. After Trump's election, favored arch-enemy Russia is in the crosshairs in the international propaganda war, whilst the act effectively brings with it the creation of a post-Cold War ministry of information or disinformation, depending on your view, to combat it at home. The U.S. Senate has effectively brought into law, described by Zero Hedge, as a bill that further chips away at press liberties in the U.S. and which sets the stage for future witch hunts and website shutdowns purely as a result of an accusation that any one media outlet or site is considered as a source of disinformation and propaganda and is then shut down by the government. Now, I'm absolutely in favor of combating propaganda. I mean, on this show, I point out propaganda all the time, and I do my best to discredit fake news stories. But what people classify as propaganda is something that's very subjective. So what I see on Fox News and I view as propaganda, well, to them, that's the truth. But it comes down to the person's perspective. And this is something that really sets up a slippery slope and allows the federal government to potentially clamp down on the First Amendment. Now, this is scary because they could simply say, well, this website that is calling us out uh, when we want to go to war, that's propaganda. They're relaying false information to the public. And now we have the authority legislatively to combat this. It's in law. They're, They're violating the law. So now, we can shut down down this press group. And the thing about it is, if I'm criticizing the government, well, what if they call that anti-government or anti-American propaganda? What if they call me a traitor? I criticize the American government all the time. I don't like that President Obama conducts drone strikes in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, uh, Libya, Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq. I don't like this. And I've spoken about this numerous times. So if the government doesn't like me speaking out about their acts of war in other countries that they try to hide from the American people, they can shut me down and say I'm doing propaganda. So the way that you combat propaganda is not by creating this Orwellian ministry. You combat propaganda by actually educating the public, by teaching them through college, through school, how they need to have a high standard of scrutiny when they are consuming media. You need to teach them how to be responsible consumers of media and that when they watch something, they actually think, what is this person's intentions? Uh, Why are they saying this? You need to question things. Now, you don't have to be as skeptical as Alex Jones and think that everything is fake and a conspiracy, but you just have to scrutinize things. I think everyone should be objective and hold people accountable, even that they like. Uh, So the point is that this is 
problematic. It, this is an attack on the First Amendment, and I've called out Hillary Clinton for wanting to basically clamp down on fake news as a war against the First Amendment, and now I'm calling out Obama for the same thing. This is not how you combat fake news. And furthermore, what's to stop the government from disseminating fake news? We know that the government disseminates fake news all the time. Look at the Iraq War. We were told that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. That was fake news. So, I mean, you're basically allowing the government to control what's propaganda or not. And then you allow the government to do propaganda and then manipulate the American people. It's troublesome. It's really troublesome. And we have to make sure that we stay vig vigilant against this type of move to destroy the First Amendment. It's a slippery slope. So I wanted to share a clip with you guys from an episode of the podcast that was originally updated on May 17th, where Bernie Sanders, as well as progressives like myself, were very specific in our warnings about Hillary Clinton and how the Democratic Party was basically courting disaster if they try to rig the primary against Bernie Sanders and if they actually go forward with someone like Hillary Clinton who cannot enthuse the base. And basically... Everything that we said, that Bernie Sanders said, that I said, that other progressives said was 100% correct. And I take no pleasure in being right here. I wish I was wrong. But nonetheless, I think it's important that we go back through and learn from our mistakes, specifically that the Democratic Party learns from their mistakes because we warned them. And I'm just hoping that they'll listen to us going forward. So here's that clip. Recently, the Bernie Sanders campaign has released a new campaign email that has ruffled the establishment's feathers. So it reads, a trio of polls released yesterday showed Hillary Clinton in a very difficult spot against Donald Trump. She led by one in Florida and Pennsylvania and actually trailed him by 4% in Ohio. For months, Bernie Sanders has outpolled Hillary Clinton against Donald Trump, and often by extraordinarily large margins. Because we must do everything we can to defeat Trump in November, our mission is to win as many pledged delegates as we can between now and June 14th. Then we're going to have a contested convention where the Democratic Party must decide if they want the candidate with the momentum who is best positioned to beat Trump or if they are willing to roll the dice and court disaster simply to protect the status quo for the political and financial establishment of this country. Now, the word disaster is specifically what's irking them. So here's what the campaign meant by that. So what do you mean by disaster? Well, look, uh, electing Trump to the presidency of the United States would be an unmitigated disaster. Uh, having the Republicans continue to control both houses of Congress would be a disaster. Having uh, Republicans make gains in governor seats would be a disaster. If you've seen recent polling, and I, I know CNN reported them yesterday, battleground uh, state polls show consistently now, both nationally and in battleground states, that Bernie Sanders is a much stronger candidate against Donald Trump than his Secretary Clinton. In fact, so, those so polls you're show saying, that Secretary you're Clinton saying, Jeff, if, if Hillary Clinton were to become the nominee, it would be a disaster for the Democratic Party and the nation. No, I said it says courting disaster. If the, the disaster would be the election of Donald Trump. I think Democrats need to nominate the strongest candidate against Donald Trump. And all the polling demonstrates uh, consistently now that Bernie Sanders is a much stronger candidate. And not only that, but, uh, but he brings out a large numbers of people who might not otherwise participate, a lot of young people. Uh, he's very strong with independents. So that he can create the kind of momentum that will not only elect a president, but also elect uh, Democrats up and down the ballot. That's what we need. Do you notice there how she tried to trap him and actually get him to call Clinton's campaign a disaster? I see what you're doing there, Karen. Is your name Karen? I think her name is Karen or Carol. Can I call you Carol? 
Karen? It doesn't matter. I see what you're doing there, Karen. Now, getting to the substance of what Jeff Weaver said, he's 100% right. So the establishment, mostly the media establishment, but also the political establishment and Democratic Party members, they're trying to paint this election as lopsided. So if it does turn out to be Clinton versus Trump, they're trying to frame it as though Trump is so crazy that Hillary Clinton is going to win by a landslide. That's not true. He has basically erased her lead. Whatever lead she had, it's gone. It evaporated. And that's because the more that people hear Hillary Clinton, the less they like her. And apparently the more they hear Donald Trump, the more they like him. Everyone thought that Donald Trump wouldn't win because the Republican voters who supported Bush or Cruz or Christie, well, they wouldn't switch over to Trump. We're learning that that's certainly not true. And furthermore, he's able to win over a lot of independents. Hillary Clinton is not able to do that. So I do want to talk about the polls that were mentioned in the email. So it does show that within the three swing states that were mentioned, Florida, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are both in statistical ties. So in Florida, Clinton beats Trump 43 to 42, and Trump erases the advantage that she has among women. She leads 48 to 35 among women, but Trump leads 49 to 37 among men. Uh, also, the advantage that she had among non-white voters is effectively erased. She leads 63 to 20%, but Trump has an advantage with white voters, 52 to 33%. So any advantage that Hillary Clinton had is gone now. Trump erased them. Now, Bernie Sanders only fares a little bit better. He fares 44 to 42 against Trump in a hypothetical matchup, but 43% of people actually have a favorable opinion of him, whereas Hillary is still in the ne negative. So you still want to go with Bernie over Hillary Clinton. Now, when it comes to Ohio, Trump leads 43 to 39. And as the saying goes, a Republican can't win the White House unless they win Ohio. And Trump may very well do that. Uh, now, Trump also erases Hillary Clinton's advantage with women and minorities here. So she leads among women 43 to 36, but he leads among men 51 to 36. Clinton, again, leads with non-white voters 76 to 14, but Trump leads with white voters 49 to 32. So however well that she's doing among those demographics, he's doing almost equally well with whites and men. So it's gone. Now that's the same case in Pennsylvania. So Clinton leads 43 to 42, and you see the same trends. Uh, Clinton leads with women 40, 51, excuse me, to 32. Trump leads with men 54 to 33. Clinton also leads with non-white voters, 74 to 14 again, and Trump leads with whites, 48 to 37. Now, Obama was actually polling similarly in these three states at the same point in 2012, but he ended up winning all three states. So that's something that needs to be said. Uh, Mitt Romney was actually leading in Florida by one point, and Obama was ahead by single digits in Ohio and Pennsylvania. But this is a very different election, and Obama's unfavorability ratings weren't as high as Clinton's. And also, Obama was able to capture the youth vote. Hillary Clinton is not able to do that. And there's also a Bernie or Bust movement that even if just a fraction of them actually don't vote for Hillary Clinton, that could be devastating in a general election. So this is completely different than 2012. But... I want to point that out just to be fair. Now, the takeaway is obviously that Bernie Sanders is still the best general election candidate to go against Trump. That's been the case, and that hasn't changed. So I'm not willing to roll the dice with Hillary Clinton, someone who could very well be indicted during a general election. See, the thing that's funny is that Hillary Clinton throughout this entire campaign, as well as her supporters, have been trying to scare us with the big Republican boogeyman, saying if you don't vote for Hillary Clinton, someone is more electable than you're going to get a Republican in office. And now we actually have data showing that if you vote for Hillary Clinton, you'll be more likely to get the big Republican boogeyman that we're all scared of that you've been trying to scare us with from the beginning. But you're not, 
you're not changing your support. You're still supporting Hillary Clinton. So do you not actually care about the Republican boogeyman like you say you do? I know Hillary Clinton doesn't because if she actually was running to prevent the Republican from getting into office like she says, well, then she'd drop out because Bernie Sanders is a much more competitive candidate against the Republicans. And furthermore, if I'm recalling it correctly, Bernie is not being investigated by the FBI. Oh, excuse me. He's not currently undergoing a security review, which we know is bogus. So look, here's the thing about Hillary Clinton. She is in this because she wants to increase their power. She's in this for narcissistic reasons, whereas Bernie Sanders is in this because he actually cares about the American people. We know he got in the race because Elizabeth Warren decided not to run. And I'll just outright say what they wanted Bernie Sanders to say, what Carol wanted Bernie Sanders to say, that Clinton's campaign is a disaster. She's running a terrible campaign. A terrible campaign. She's running a negative campaign. We all know, if you have read any political science studies, you know that if you attack a candidate, especially one with high favorabilities like Bernie Sanders, then your net favorability goes down. And if you look at overall trends, that's been the case. I've been yelling about this since the beginning of the election, and Hillary Clinton isn't listening, so maybe she doesn't watch the Humanist Report, but it's just common sense, honestly. I mean, she has people that she pays the big bucks to crunch numbers for her, to actually read the studies to show what works, but Hillary Clinton doesn't care. She's in this to win this for herself and Bill, uh, and it doesn't matter if they take the country down as a result. Well, that's all the stories that I got for you guys today. I want to thank everyone for tuning in. Uh, I want to send a shout out to the members, the Patreon patrons, and people who sent in a donation uh, via PayPal to us. You guys help us to not only survive, but also to thrive. And just know that Donald Trump is taking office in about a week. And uh, we're going to have a lot to deal with. We're going to have a huge sh battle on our hands. And it's time for all of us to step up in our own way and really fight against him and kick his ass. And I think that we could do that. So, uh, yeah, I will see you all next week. Have a great day.